Welcome to the Federal Society's Practice Group Podcast. The following podcast, hosted by the Federal Society's Criminal Law and Procedure Practice Group, was recorded on Tuesday, October 3, 2017, during a live teleform conference call held exclusively for Federalist Society members. Welcome to the Federalist Society's teleform conference call. This afternoon, our expert will be discussing qualified immunity. My name is Laura Flint. I'm the Deputy Director of Practice Groups at the Federalist Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the expert on today's call. Today we are happy to have with us Professor William Bode, Neubauer Family Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Chicago Law School. I will turn it over to Professor Bode to get us started. After opening remarks, we'll go to audience question and answer. Thank you for speaking with us. The floor is yours. One of the most important doctrines in constitutional litigation uh, today is qualified immunity. Uh, and there are two important aspects to the court's treatment of, of qualified immunity. So one thing it means is that when you sue a police officer for damages for having violated uh, your constitutional rights, or really any government official, the officer can't be held liable unless they violated what's called clearly established law. That is, it's not enough that they violated the Constitution. Uh, the Constitution is, of course, law, clearly established law in a sense, but it has to be something much more specific. And the Supreme Court's cases over the past 50 years have said that uh, an official can only be held liable for violating the Constitution, not just if it's unconstitutional, but only if the official is plainly incompetent or knowingly violates the law. The idea is basically that the plaintiffs have to be able to point to a, a specific case that's pretty close to what happened this time, or to a legal violation that's so obvious that even if there's no case law on point, uh, a police officer should have known, a reasonable person should have known that this behavior is unlawful. So one thing qualified immunity does is it is it sort of adds this extra layer of, of immunity, of protection, on top of what the, the Constitution itself provides. Uh, that's important. What it also does, what the Supreme Court also does, which is also important, uh, is it provides uh, special treatment and special sort of procedural attention to qualified immunity cases. So police officers or other officials who have a qualified immunity defense get a series of special uh, procedural rights and appeals. They can stop discovery from happening while they appeal the denial of their motion to dismiss. They can take interlocutory appeals that regular civil litigants can't. And this is not a formal rule, but it may actually be the, the most important recent development in, in what's happening at the court. But the, the court itself gives more attention to these cases. So it is more likely to grant a petition for certiorari if it's brought by an officer claiming that they should have gotten qualified immunity. The court has even expressly said that uh, it does this because it thinks qualified immunity is important to the nation as a whole. These cases are something it should reach out and take. And it takes these cases, even if they don't present some of the normal criteria for a, a Supreme Court case, even if there's no real split among the circuits about what the law is, uh, even if what's really at stake is just a, a sort of an argument about how to apply a well-established rule. So the Supreme Court both has given uh, a form of, of immunity and defense to police officers who are sued, and then also special procedural treatment. Now, there are several, develop several recent developments that might make this term a, an especially important one to watch in terms of qualified immunity. Members of the court have raised concerns about this doctrine of qualified immunity. Uh, most notably, last term, Justice Thomas uh, wrote a concurring opinion in a case called Ziglar versus Abbasi, a civil rights suit against a group of justice officials arising out of 9-11, uh, in which 
they were given qualified immunity, but he wrote separately to say that it wasn't clear that the court's qualified immunity jurisprudence was really legally justified. Uh, in the past, Justice Scalia had written some opinions along these lines. Justice Kennedy has written some opinions along these lines. So there are some justices who said they're at least a little bit concerned with the legal foundations of what the court has been doing. Uh, and in my view, rightly so. So the statute under which most constitutional lawsuits have been brought, 42 U.S.C. 1983, Section 1983, as we call it, uh, doesn't say anything about immunity. It says that uh, when a government official violates your constitutional rights under you know, color of state law, that they can be held liable. Uh, and it doesn't say anything about immunities and defenses. So there's no textual basis for qualified immunity. The court has instead said that you can find sort of unwritten, non-textual defenses or immunities that aren't in the statute as long as they were present in the common law of 1871 when the statute was enacted. So, for example, an immunity that, that has a historical basis is judicial immunity, the idea that judges can't be sued just because they got a constitutional case wrong and were overturned on appeal, that sort of what happens in the judicial process is supposed to stay in the judicial process. Now, the court has occasionally tried to suggest that qualified immunity is also grounded in this history, uh, but it isn't, and the court hasn't, to be honest, tried very hard. Um, throughout the 19th century, when our Constitution well, throughout the 18th century when the Constitution was adopted, throughout the 19th century when the 14th Amendment was adopted and when the Civil Rights Statute was adopted, the norm for lawsuits against government officials was that they were liable for the consequences of their actions. What courts saw their role as was to apply the law. So they figured out whether what the government official was doing was unconstitutional. If it was unconstitutional, the court you know, said so, and then the, the plaintiff could get a remedy. And the courts did not think it was their job to immunize government officials from the consequences of their actions. It wasn't their job to create a second kind of immunity on top of uh, just the requirements of the Constitution. Now, sometimes legislatures did. Sometimes legislatures would reach out and offer to immunize or compensate officers who'd been sued for doing something reasonable in the line of duty. But the courts always said, you know, that's a, a question up to the legislature if they want to immunize or indemnify officers, that's fine, but it doesn't change our role and our duty. Uh, and indeed today, almost all police officers are indemnified either by governments or contracts, um, so that's still a, a principle operating in the background. <clears throat> so, the, so it doesn't lack a basis in text, it doesn't have a basis in history, and just as Thomas has said, perhaps in an appropriate case, we ought to reconsider our qualified immunity jurisprudence. We ought to think about whether there's something that's gone wrong here and whether we ought to return to a, uh, a more legality-based model of constitutional litigation. That brings us to this term, to October term 2017. Uh, tomorrow, the court will hear oral argument in District of Columbia versus Westby, the first case of this term that uh, implicates the doctrine of qualified immunity. I suspect it won't be the last, so I suspect whatever we hear uh, tomorrow, we may hear, we may hear more in the coming months and weeks. Um, Westby is a, a sort of strange case. Uh, police officers arrested a group of people at a, uh, well, a house party. Uh, some would say a, uh, raucous house party with strippers and drugs in Southeast DC. Uh, they got there and after talking to some people concluded that nobody had a right to be there because the landlord had not given permission to the host to host the party and the that everybody shouldn't be there, and so they arrested everybody for trespassing. Um, but the whole thing turned into a constitutional lawsuit 
because a lot of the people who were there say they were uh, they didn't know they were doing anything wrong. They were invited there, and they just assumed, like a lot of house parties, that whoever the host was had a right to invite them. And so this was a you know a case of wrongful arrest, and they ought to be compensated for the time they had to spend in jail for not doing anything wrong. Um, that's a fairly sort of ordinary Fourth Amendment type dispute, but it is now uh, turned into a uh, not only a federal case but a, a big Supreme Court case. The lower court, the trial court, and the District of uh, Columbia Court of Appeals both concluded that the police officers had violated the Constitution, that n indeed in the course of their sort of investigating this party, they did not have any good reason to believe that the guests were violating the law. You know, maybe they weren't supposed to be there, maybe somebody should tell the guests, you all should get out of here, but they weren't knowingly trespassing, uh, and therefore there wasn't any reason to arrest them. Uh, and moreover, it concluded that it was sufficiently clear there was no reason to arrest them, that the officers shouldn't be entitled to qualified immunity, and they could be sued uh, by, the, by the House guests. Uh, a judge dissented, Judge, Bra judge Janice Rogers Brown, and four judges in the D.C. Circuit all dissented from a denial of rehearing on box, saying allowing police officers to be sued in this kind of case will <clears throat> uh, make it impossible for police officers to do their jobs. It'll cast a big pall over the ability of law enforcement, worry about being second-guessed by courts, and the Supreme Court has taken up the case and will be, and will be hearing it tomorrow. Uh, and in, in ways, Westby implicates both of the important aspects of qualified immunity I mentioned at the outset of the call. So first, there's the question of you know, the legality of this whole qualified immunity doctrine. As I said, some of the justices have already raised questions about whether this doctrine uh, should exist or has a legal basis. And there's a, a amicus brief from the ACLU arguing extensively that the time has come to um, either overrule or at least trim back qualified immunity doctrine because it's gotten so far away from anything that can be justified on the text and history of the statute. So that's one question uh, potentially put at issue, although as with many arguments made in an amicus brief, the justices can decline to get into it. But secondly, and, and maybe also profoundly, uh, this is exactly the kind of case that, that emblematizes the Supreme Court's special treatment of qualified immunity cases. So as the briefing has developed, much of the arguments between the parties are about very factual disputes, like uh, what exactly did the person who was allegedly hosting the party say to the police officers on the phone? Did she say one thing to one of the police officers and one thing to another police officer? Did the police officers really smell marijuana there? And if so, why didn't they find any? And doesn't that suggest uh, that their accounts aren't entirely credible? And, and so on, a sort of extensive uh, fighting about what the affidavits by both parties say and what was raised and what wasn't raised. Uh, this is these are the kind of cases that federal district courts deal with every day, the kind of cases that federal courts of appeal sometimes get on appeal. These are not the kinds of cases that the Supreme Court uh, normally agrees to hear. Uh, even when a constitutional question is sort of nominally involved, the court doesn't normally take these fact-bound applications of existing law. Uh, but it took this one. Uh, and I think it took this one, and the, the officers are even somewhat forthright that it took this one, because here police officers were held liable for what could be upwards of a million dollars. And that is a, uh, to the court, is a big event, uh, and it's sort of a loan so special that the court ought to, ought to get involved and give it a really close look to see whether or not uh, it agrees, even if it's not the kind of case the court would normally, the court would normally take. So I suspect tomorrow we'll see the justices asking a lot of questions about 
uh, Peaches, that's the host's name, and the affidavits and the facts and what exactly happened and whether or not it was enough for probable cause, which is not something we normally see them doing except in the qualified immunity context. But I hope we will also see at least some of them asking whether or not uh, something has gone wrong and whether or not this is the kind of uh, the kind of role the court ought to have and whether or not this kind of immunity is something the court should have imposed, and if not, whether it ought to do something to walk that back. Are you ready for audience questions? Yes. yes, I'm ready for questions. Great. Let's go to audience questions. In a moment, you'll hear a prompt indicating that the floor mode has been turned on. After that, to request the floor, enter star, then the pound key. When we get to your request, you will hear a prompt, and then you may ask your question. You will answer question. We will order. We will answer questions in the order in which they are received. Again, to ask a question, please enter star, then the pound key on your telephone keypad. Not seeing a question from the audience while we wait for our first, I'll ask a question of my own. Um, what is your prediction for the outcome in Wesley, Wesby? Um, great, great question. And obviously predicting what the Supreme Court will do is always, uh, is always a little bit risky, but I guess that's what law professors are here for. I think the most likely thing is that the, a majority will rule for the police officers without necessarily even getting into qualified immunity. So qualified immunity only kicks in if there's a, a, a holding that there was an actual constitutional violation. So if the, if the court concludes the Constitution wasn't violated at all, it doesn't need to get into immunity. And I think there's a pretty good chance that, that that'll be a, a sort of a way out for some of the controversies about immunity and that that will sort of resonate with the way the justices see the case. In other words, they will say, we think there was no Fourth Amendment violation here at all, that what the police officers did was uh, reasonable, or at least you know, under the circumstances, they had reason to believe that people weren't where they were supposed to be and that this was uh, a case of trespassing, and therefore the Fourth Amendment wasn't violated. I'm not sure it will be unanimous. I think if, if they were unanimous agreement there was no Fourth Amendment violation, they probably wouldn't have needed to hear argument in this case in the first place. But um, but I suspect that's, that'll be the way the, the majority ends up, and that we'll see fights about qualified immunity, at least in this case, more likely to happen from the dissents or concurrences than from a majority of the court. Let's go to our first audience question. Good morning. Uh, full confession, I'm actually writing a response to a qualified uh, immunity motion to dismiss as we speak. Um, I was curious what your thoughts are if a majority of the court uh, does find that qualified immunity isn't historically backed, what they would replace it with, or do you think that they would just punt it to the legislative branch? Uh, that's yeah, that's a great question. So I do think there is a, you know, there's a, a decent chance that if the court were to to change qualified immunity doctrine a lot, that the Congress might. Uh, be pressured to step in. You know, law enforcement has a pretty big lobby, uh, in a sense, the entire government. Um, so there is a, a decent chance of Congress intervening, but you know, the court can't count on that, uh, and they can't just punt uh, and say we don't know what to do. You know, Congress tell us what you think. Um, so my guess is that the court would proceed slowly. That the court would not say, you know, all of a sudden uh, there's completely strict liability for officers who violate. You know the Constitution. They wouldn't. They wouldn't return to the 19th century rule, and certainly wouldn't do it uh, in a single case. Um, the two, 
the two sort of more modest positions, which would be a little more defensible, they could they could consider uh, adopting. One would be to say uh, something like an anti-retroactivity position, that when a court creates what really is a new rule of constitutional law, that, I mean, you know, of course the Constitution has always been there, but, you know, something that nobody really thought was the law beforehand, like the right to same-sex marriage uh, or, you know, take your pick for various you know, constitutional questions, that that can't be applied to people before the decision. In other words, a sort of uh, officials shouldn't be required to guess ahead of time what these major new developments are going to be. But that, you know, that alone would be much more modest than the kind of current projection where, you know, in most cases, especially most Fourth Amendment cases, the police officers end up getting uh, a huge amount of deference. The other possible thing I think they might do would be to, to draw on, by analogy, um, the rule of lenity available to criminal defendants. And in fact, in some of the court's earliest qualified immunity cases, this is where some of the idea of immunity first came from. Was a, So when a criminal statute is applied against a, an individual in cases of ambiguity or in close cases, in theory, the individual, the tie is supposed to go to the defendant because, you know, it's... Uh, uh, it's important that the law be clearly stated and people be on notice what it is that they could get in trouble for. And for certain statutes, like Section 1983, the court has sometimes sort of carried over that doctrine. I think the intuition is these police officers are being you know, put on the line for a lot of liability for something that they personally did, and they shouldn't be held liable unless it was clear that what they did was unlawful. And so the court could give kind of the same kind of treatment to officers that it currently gives to criminal defendants. And notably, that's a lot... Uh, less protective. That's a lot weaker than what officers get right now. Um, criminal defendants occasionally can take advantage of the rule of lenity in a really close case, but it's not like uh, the motion that wins most criminal offense cases, and it's not occupying most of the Court of Appeals and Supreme Court's docket. So that would be a, a kind of way of giving the same kind of um, protection in, in close cases if the court didn't want to give something as broad as immunity now. Thank you. Again, to ask a question, please enter star, then the pound key on your telephone keypad. Um, let's go to our next question. Uh, Professor, um, uh, I guess in, uh, to continue the, uh, the, the full disclosure, uh, uh, I generally represent law enforcement officers and have for the last 30 years throughout the country. Um, I, I, I take note of your comment that um, some of the, what we would think of as the more conservative members of the Supreme Court have questioned the etiology of the doctrine of qualified immunity, but at the same time, and I think your acknowledgement um, as it relates to the moderator's question about the likely outcome of the pending case um, demonstrates, we find that um, oftentimes the court finds uh, unanimity or close to unanimity in finding qualified immunity, uh, even where... Um, learned judges of the appellate court were absolutely certain it didn't apply. So um, all of that said, uh, you, you mentioned that Justice Thomas, for example, suggested the possibility of finding the right case to analyze the propriety of what has become qualified immunity. Yet that doesn't really seem to come up other than perhaps a comment in concurrence or maybe in dissent. So what in your mind would be the right case where that happens if the court seems to, as you predicted even for tomorrow, seems to move quickly to the, the very question rather than the, the basis of the doctrine. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. And um, so 
so I, I think, and I think this is sort of implicit in your question, but I'll, I'll spell it out too. So I think sometimes, you know, the court takes a case where all the, you know, it seems to them an easy case that may in fact be why they took it. It's because it seems so clear to them the lower courts did something wrong. Uh, maybe the lower courts, you know, said something was unconstitutional and the court thinks it's obviously not uh, unconstitutional or that there should be immunity. Um, and, and this may be the kind of case we have tomorrow. Uh, so maybe the, the way the court currently picks cases tends to give a kind of one-sided view of what the what the lower courts are doing. Um, I think so. I think the the right kind of case and the kind of case we might see where the court's more likely to really want to reconsider it uh, are some of the the police uh, use of force and even police use of deadly force cases uh, that arise. Especially, my sense is that the Fifth Circuits and Eleventh Circuits tend to have the most. Uh, officer protective views of those doctrines, at least sometimes. I mean, in each case kind of depends, but the, the, there have been some cases in those circuits where the there's been what seems like uh, clearly unreasonable official conduct. The lower court has even said, this is, you know, this is unconstitutional, this is definitely unreasonable, but it's not so clear to us that it was unreasonable that there should be, um, there should be liability. And that kind of case, I think, is one where the, there might be more interest. Uh, in part, I think what the what the court might say, what even some of the conservative justices might say, is this is there's a certain amount of discretion built into the the constitutional standards. You know, the the court says when analyzing the Fourth Amendment itself, this is not supposed to be 2020 hindsight. Judges are not supposed to substitute their judgment for the judgment of the police officer on the ground, and that gives the police officers all the all the discretion they should need, and we shouldn't need another layer of of immunity um, on top of that. May I ask a follow-up question? Yes. From whence would come then what, um, again, those of us who defend law enforcement regularly find to be a very potent procedural tool to which you uh, alluded or actually described earlier, which is the limitation on discovery. Um, and, and, of course, Iqbal versus Ashcroft is an excellent explication of that, that um, uh, Mr. Iqbal wanted to take uh, at that time, Attorney General Ashcroft's deposition, and but for the procedural um, limitations that immunity implies, one might have seen that happen. So, from from whence uh, I, I understand the lenity argument. I also understand, that, uh, as you know, most courts confuse the difference between, uh, or, or previously have been found by the Supreme Court to have confused the difference between what is a Fourth Amendment violation of objectively reasonable or objectively unreasonable use of force versus clearly established law as it relates to that. So I get that, but from from whence then might come these important procedural protections? Right. No, that's that's uh it's important to highlight those. So I think what would then happen, and this wouldn't obviously make make you happy or your clients happy in every case, is that a lot more would be left to the district court's discretion about the timing and management of discovery. And obviously in most cases even not against uh officers, the district court uh, can decide to delay discovery until after the motion to dismiss, especially if the motion to dismiss is substantial, uh, and I think usually will. Uh, but every once in a while, you know, the, there's some reason that that's not a good idea. Some, if we could just get this one piece of evidence sorted out or this one thing disclosed, maybe the case would become a lot simpler, uh, or maybe the district court has the suspicion that this motion to dismiss is just for the purpose of delay and mucking things up. And so then the 
the district court has a lot more discretion. And then occasionally the Court of Appeals can step in and outrageous cases and issue a writ of mandamus. And that's when the CEO of Coca-Cola uh, gets sued for you know some unlawful employment pattern and practice. That's normally the the regime that that uh, has to work for has to work there, and that would be the same kind of thing that would carry over. So in most cases, I suspect it wouldn't be that big of a practical change. But sometimes there'd be a judge with a, a sort of a special view of the case, and that that would be where the the difference would really kick in. Thank you. Thank you. We have one more question pending. Hello, Will. This is uh, Arthur Hellman. Um, I'm very interested in your following up on the suggestion about congressional action. It's always seemed to me that the um, other part of this um, body of law is the court's ruling that there's no respondeat superior liability for municipalities or the other employers. I'm wondering if there could be some sort of compromise that would put some of the liability on the the employer and not put the plaintiff in the position of seeking to impose, as in this case, millions of dollars of uh, uh, damages on the uh, the police officer. Uh, yeah, no, that's that's a great question too. So, uh, as as you probably know, and maybe some of our listeners do, and some don't, um, in a separate line of cases about municipal and state liability, as you say, the the Supreme Court has said that the there's a suspension of the normal rule. The employer is responsible for, responsible for the acts of their officers. So um, it's harder to uh, attribute the acts up the chain. And I think one, if you were just sort of trying to be a, a 21st century rational person about this, you might well want a compromise like that and say, leave the officers alone. Don't hold them individually liable. You know, the government should be the one to have to pay the bills. And then, of course, the government has an incentive to train and supervise the officers if the bills get out of hand. Um, and that you know, that would be a much sort of tidier and more orderly system than putting individual uh, officers on the line. I think that would actually be, I mean, another great advantage to having this tackled by uh, Congress is that they have more of the ability to do that and look across cases. You could also imagine, you know, looking at other kinds of administrative remedies and bringing in the whole, the whole set of kind of administrative law. Now, that said, there is one irony here, which is that I, in most of these cases, the government is paying the bills because the government agrees to indemnify the officers when they're sued by employment contract, by union agreement, by legislation. Um, a recent study by Joanna Schwartz of Suits Against Police Officers found that in well over 99% of cases, um, when police officers are held liable in court, the government is the one who eventually pays and not them. So there's a sense in which, uh, on the back end, governments have already arranged for this system where they do claim essentially responsibility for the acts of their officers voluntarily, not because the court makes them, um, which makes it even stranger in some sense that we have a whole elaborate jurisprudence devoted to, to worrying about the officers being held liable uh, when they, in fact, won't be the ones necessarily paying the bill. But uh, an advantage, again, of, of Congress stepping in, if they ever wanted to step in about anything, would be they could... Uh, take the measure of sort of the whole situation and see whether we should have a sort of more uni uh, uniform and orderly indemnification regime rather than this kind of hodgepodge immunity. Well, you could also do other things, for example, caps on damages or change the standards so that um, would be something in between, you know, something higher than negligence or something like that. I mean, you have all sorts of possibilities when, when you're writing a law rather than doing it on a case-by-case -case basis with precedent as a starting point. 
Indeed, and you could also decide to treat different kinds of cases differently. So maybe you know cases in which people die uh, have different concerns than cases in which you know it's a violation of a you know a technical Fourth Amendment rule and something else. Um, this is uh, there's a old saying about hard cases making bad law. Uh, and sometimes I worry that just cases themselves make bad law. They're not a really good way to set about trying to make a whole coherent policy regime. Thank you. Thank you. Again, to ask a question, please enter star, then the pound key on your telephone keypad. While we wait for our next question, I'll make a brief announcement. Um, our next teleform conference call is tomorrow, Wednesday, October 4th at 3 p.m., there will be a litigation and legislation update on Second Amendment rights, and will feature Alan Guru, who's partner at, at Guru LLC. I'll make another call for questions. Again, to ask a question, please enter star, then the pound key on your telephone keypad. Let's go to our next question. Uh, yes, hello, Professor Bowd. I had a question. Uh, do you have a sense of how Justice Gorsuch will decide cases on qualified immunity? Uh, great question. Uh, again, now, now we're in the realm of, of pure speculation, but sure. Uh, I would guess that Justice Gorsuch will be uh, drawn to some of Justice Thomas's views in a couple of respects. I'm going to guess that he will be worried about whether just qualified immunity has a, a legal basis in the statute. Um, maybe he'll conclude it does. Maybe he'll have some new argument that nobody's yet come up with. But I would guess he's going he's gonna to worry about that and not just take it for granted. But I would guess he'll also think that the, um, in a lot of cases where the lower courts were sort of too quick to find a constitutional violation, that he'll be one of the ones to say, we have to be careful about not just substituting our own 2020 hindsight for uh, for what happened here. So in a case like Westby, I would not be at all surprised if he's one of the justices who would say there wasn't a Fourth Amendment violation here. What the police did was perfectly reasonable, uh, and therefore we don't have to worry about you know whether there's some kind of immunity. But he could prove me wrong within a month. And then I, I had a quick follow-up, if you don't mind. I, sure. I was wondering, why does an immunity doctrine have to have a rooted basis in text? I mean, we have a whole series of common law immunities, and if the courts kind of carve them up as, as time goes on, maybe inspired by English law, whatever it may be. What's, you know, what's the kind of constitutional legal problem with having um, an immunity doctrine that's not rooted in, in the text? Uh, well, so to be sure, I think, I think it's right. You can have an immunity doctrine that exists as a, as a common law matter, even if the text doesn't explicitly say something about it. But then it's rooted, rooted in history, uh, which is often the great sort of companion and hand, handmade text. So that's the court's approach, to say, we look at what the statute says, and then we look at what was present in the common law in 1871. Now, the, and those are the things qualified immunity lacks, text or history. Now, you might think, and I guess some people do think, that you shouldn't need text or history, that courts should just be able to kind of create new immunities as a matter of the continued common law recognition of whatever it is judges think is uh, wise and just and a good idea. Uh, and there, uh, at least, I think, and the court says that the separation of powers stops that, that judges are supposed to apply the law, meaning both the text and sort of historical common law rules that have been around since the text was enacted that are kind of the backdrops against which the text was written. 
but they're not supposed to be engaged in the kind of freewheeling policymaking that's better left for Congress, as sort of uh, Arthur Hellman and I were just talking about, uh, and that they're, you know, that part's not their job. So if they don't have something to look to outside of outside of their own views, either text or history, then they're they're going beyond their Article Three role. Again, to ask a question, please enter star, then the pound key on your telephone keypad. A reminder to keep an eye out for emails announcing upcoming teleform calls and to consult the full schedule of upcoming calls on our website, fedsoc.org. Also available there are podcasts of previously recorded teleform calls you may have missed. I'll make a final call for questions. To ask a question, please enter star, then the pound key on your telephone keypad. Not seeing anyone, would you like to make any closing remarks? Uh, no, thank you. Just thanks for everybody for calling in. Great. On behalf of the Federalist Society, I want to thank our expert for the benefit of his valuable time and expertise today. We welcome listener feedback by email at infofedsoc.org. Thank you all for joining us. We are adjourned. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this practice group podcast. For materials related to this podcast and other Federalist Society multimedia, please visit the Federalist Society's website at fedsoc.org slash multimedia.